Welcome to Calling a City to Life, a podcast by Queen's Park Baptist Church in Glasgow. Each week you'll hear from us two episodes, the talk and the chat. First up is the talk, and that's the audio version of this week's sermon as preached at Queen's Park Baptist. So this is your opportunity to listen to it again or to listen to it for the first time. And later on in the week, you'll be able to tune in again and download the chat where we gather around and discuss in a bit more detail some of the issues and themes raised in this week's talk. Thanks for tuning in to the talk. We hope you enjoy it. And we look forward to you tuning in again later in the week. Enjoy. Thank you, Karen and a team band. Welcome to everybody. Special welcome to you. Uh, if you're a visitor among us, welcome to those who are not really here. Um, uh, welcome to those who've been running up and down the hill before they came. Um, welcome to those of you who are joining us online and to anybody who's listening on the podcast. For those of you who are visitors, we're in a series on Revelation. Uh, don't worry, each kind of like Sunday kind of stands in its own, but it all starts to weave together as well. And last week, Ian was speaking to us from Revelation 12 and 13. And it was a powerful and important word, I think, for many of us. If you missed it, then I would encourage you to catch up on uh, the podcast. And one of the key things that Revelation 12 says to us and that Ian brought to us is we're in a battle. We're in a battle. And this revealing that we're in a battle, this disclosing of who the enemy is, what the enemy does, How we're to fight doesn't end with the close of chapter 13, but continues on into chapter 14. It's the same message, but seen from a different perspective. It's got a different focus, but it's still all about the battle. The battle fought by the lamb and his followers is not fought like the dragon fights. It's not fought with the weapons and strategies of Rome, but with the kingdom of God. And that makes a big difference. And in full, we read last week in 12 and 13, and in chapter 14, John is, there's a playfulness to Revelation. It's a bit like, Jackie's like, come on, Brody. There is, there is. This morning when I was walking to work, I was thinking, man, somebody needs to put Revelation as kind of like a rock opera. Because, I mean, sorry, I'm, I'm going off script. Because there is, there's singing everywhere. There's all these scenes of darkness. And then song bursts out. It's a rock opera. Um, but anyway, there's, there's a playfulness here because John is parodying the power and militarism of Rome. There's a subversion of how we understand warfare. Warfare is violence. And the kingdom reversal, that that's not how we are to fight or we are to do battle or what victory looks like. When John wrote, um, he didn't write in chapter numbers and verses. He didn't go, 14. Um, These get added a lot later. Chapters get added in the 12th century. Verses get added in the 16th century. And sometimes chapters and verses can act like traffic lights. They stop us from reading when actually 
the thought, the paragraph, whatever carries on. So chapter 14 doesn't end with the end of chapter 14 in verse 20, but extends on into the first four verses of chapter 15. So that's where we are going to read. If you have your Bible with you, uh, turn to Revelation 14. If you're using your phone, great. The words will also be up on uh, the screen if that is helpful to you. John writes, Then I looked, and there was a lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name on, and his father's name, written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was the sound of harpists playing the harps. And they sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. It's these who have not defiled themselves with women for their virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They've been redeemed from humankind as firstfruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found. They are blameless. Then I saw another flying angel in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Then another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has made all the nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then another angel, a third, followed them, crying with a loud voice, Those who worship the beast and his image and receive a mark in their foreheads or their hands, they will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured and mixed into the cup of his anger. And they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints and those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who from now on die in the Lord. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labours, for their deeds will follow them. Then I looked, and there was a white cloud, and seated in the cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to the one who sat in the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So the one who sat in the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, and he too had a sharp sickle. Then the other angel came out from the altar, and the angel who had authority over fire and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. 
So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and gathered the vintage of the earth. And he threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. And the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of about 200 miles. Then I saw another portent in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is ended. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb. Great and amazing are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your judgments have been revealed. Amen. Another nice and simple passage to try and deal with. Um, the hardness is evenly spread between Ian and I, I think. John presents to his four scenes here, four motifs of the lamb and his followers in battle. Three of them, I think, are seen from an earthly perspective. And then in chapter 15, we start to see this from a heavenly perspective again. And so we have the lamb and his followers in worship bookending what is happening here. Takes us back in ourselves. The first four verses of chapter 15 are what we are seeing in the first five verses of chapter 14, but seeing it from a different perspective. And John not only plays with chronology, as we've discovered, but of where he sees things from. So as chapter 14 opens, he's the same viewpoint, the same perspective as what he was seeing the events of 13 and 12. This is what's happening on earth as seen from earth. And the first thing he sees is the lamb who we last saw in chapter 8 opening the scroll. And the lamb is in Mount Zion. So the link with Psalm 2, which Ian drew out for us last week, that's still current. That link with Psalm 2 is still going on. It's informing the imagery here. It's informing what we understand is being said. And Mount Zion is, of course, Jerusalem. And the point here is theological. It is not a commentary on present, current or future events to do with Jerusalem. Revelation is linked to what is currently happening in the Middle East and in our wider world inasmuch as it reveals to us that death, violence, destruction, the misery that we see no matter who the perpetrator is, is the work of the dragon and the beasts, not the lamb. The lamb stands on Mount Zion. And it speaks to us of several things. It reminds us of his holiness, holiness that we've sung about this morning. It reminds us that the lamb is God's king and therefore has that authority, that kingly power. He is able to exercise judgment. It reminds us 
not just that the lamb executes his judgment, but how he executes it and how he wages war. That This is radically, radically different from the dragon. The dragon who represents not just Rome, but all earthly powers. That the lamb stands on Mount Zion reminds us that he is God's son, as Sam 2 tells us. And in that, I think there's a link between what we are seeing here and understand here in John's gospel. That this lamb on Mount Zion is an expression of God's great love. It's an expression of God's desire that all will be saved. It reminds us that God sent his son, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God's way of salvation, expressed in John chapter 3, those famous verses in 16 and 17, doesn't change. God's love is dependable. It is rock solid. It is not fickle. God is not somebody we come to worried about how he's going to receive us. Am I in his good books today or am I going to get a clip in the ear? God's love is long-lasting. It is steadfast. It is true. His character is consistent. It doesn't flip-flop. And so the way of judgment of the Lamb, the way he fights in battle, is what is expressed in John 3, 16 and 17, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son not to condemn the world, that we, we might be saved. The Lamb isn't on his own. He's with his army, this 144,000 who have his name on their forehead and his father's name on his forehead. And if you look to the doorway when you come in, then you will have glimpsed the army. Wow, four of them at least. The figures above our doorway here are singing with their harps. Now, if you remember in the beginning of chapter 14, there's this sound like rushing waters and harps. That's the 144,000 that we then see in chapter 15 with their harps of God singing. We get to know what the song is, which means that we are also the 144,000. Unfortunately, the sculptor, um, Mr. Mossman, I'm looking at Graham for a nod. Mr. Mossman um, gave them wings. And as Hazel from Perth helpfully reminded me this week, in the Bible, it's seraphim and cherubim that have wings. Angels don't have wings. Some of the early church fathers speculated whether angels have knees because they're always standing, so why would they need knees? But they don't have wings. Um, so that's a picture of you and I. The figures above the door are you and I. They're the army of the Lord deep in battle. The number 144,000 speaks of their completeness, of their perfection before the Lord. 
God has made them blameless. There is no lie in their mouth. And here, along with so many other places in the book of Revelation, is where we see the early church take seriously the words of Jesus in Matthew 26, where he says, put away your sword. Indeed, Jesus goes on to say that those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And this reminds us that attempts to overcome evil with violence, be that swords, bombs, knives, harsh words, unkind words, hateful thoughts, merely perpetuate the cycle of violence and death and destruction. It's merely just being co-opted into the work of the dragon instead of the lamb. Put away your swords. What swords do we carry? In our thoughts, in our words, in our attitudes, in who we cheer on or whatever as we watch our TVs, are we carrying swords or we have done as Jesus has said and put our swords away? And violence is evil not because it just brings to death those who live by the sword, but we also know that it brings death to those in proximity in the callous language of warfare to collateral damage. Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps because we choose the way of the dragon and not the way of the lamb. Evil is not overcome by violence. Rather, violence feeds and gives succor to the dragon and the beasts. The lamb does no violence. Whether it's here in chapter 14 or when we get to chapter 19 or anywhere in Revelation, the lamb does no violence. As the prophet Isaiah foretold, the lamb is the one upon whom violence is visited. He is the one who is slaughtered, who is stricken for the sin and evil in our hearts and in this world. Yet he does no violence and the words of truth are found in his mouth. And so his army, you and I with our harps, we fight as he fights. We fight without violence, but in holiness and truth. Note that just as the lamb who is slain yet lives has no lie in his mouth, eh, in this passage from Isaiah, so John writes that we who are singing in worship and praise have no lie in our mouths. With no lie in our mouths because, do you know what? We're worshipping God with the song that he gives us. God doesn't give us lies. His song is our weapon. When we first sang that song, kind of like, oh, uh, my weapon is a melody or whatever, I thought, oh, we're singing nonsense again. But that's exactly the picture that we have here in chapter 14. Our worship of God is a weapon. The song that he gives us is a weapon. A song not only known to the 144,000, but because we read it here, we know it too. We learn the words of that song in chapter 15. Great and wonderful are your deeds, 
Lord God Almighty. That's the 101 about worship, isn't it? It's about you, God. Great. You're great. Great and wonderful are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. Even when I don't see it, your ways are just and true because you're king of all the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? That's a rhetorical answer. Revelation is funny. Um, it's like one of these TV shows that I need my kids to explain to me. Oh, I thought they were dead. Like, no, no, they're alive again. Because in Revelation, we see kind of like, we see, we have that horrible image of, of those with the mark kind of like being tormented. And yet when we get to the end of the book, the kings and the nations are alive again and come into God's holy place. I don't know all what to make of it. But all will fear and glorify his name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your judgments have been revealed. And if we cast our minds back to chapter 2 and chapter 3, where John brings these seven messages to the seven churches, then one of the things that he's addressing in particular is distorted worship. It was a big issue in Pergamum and Thyrata. Worship had got confused and muddled and things that belonged outside the church had come in in their worship. The dragon and the lamb cannot be worshipped together. Sitting on a fence is a painful place. They both demand unequivocal allegiance. The dragon makes his demand deceptively and coercively. Whereas the lamb says, really come and worship me. Because I want love, true love, as your response. The battle is fought not with conventional weapons, but with a song. Because the 144,000 know that the lamb has already won. And so can sing in truth about his victory. Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the lamb. In a world where there's so much need, where there's so much that could be done or perhaps even should be done, Worship can seem like a bit of a waste of time. Let's go and do something more practical. I love what Eugene Peterson says about worship in his wee book, Reversed Thunder. I'll paraphrase. He says, when we worship, it doesn't like, look like we're doing much because we aren't. We're looking at what God is doing and orientating our action to the compass points of how he acts in the world. And that we see in chapters 14 and the beginning of 15, the same act of worship from different points, from us worshipping on earth, but do you know what? We're simultaneously worshipping in heaven. It reminds us of several things. It reminds us that worship 
changes us as we participate in the worship of heaven. It changes things in the spiritual realm. By orientating our actions to the compass points of how God acts in the world, so our worship bleeds into how we choose to act, what we choose to do, how we choose to be, what we choose to say. And it doesn't do that by magic. It does that as we choose to respond to the truth of who God is and allow that to shape us. The truth of Jesus' victory, that the victory's already won, that I don't need to pick up the sword to try and do his job for him because he has done it. The truth, as Ian spoke about, about who we are as his children. Truth that we need to step into and appropriate. Lies that we need to break off, that we know the freedom of that truth. We're back in 12 and 13 because it's the same battle. And we can't separate off worship, which we know is more than singing. It's, it is singing, but it's also speaking forth God's word. It's prayer. We can't separate that off from what we do. They belong together. They inform each other. Doing without worship leads to burnout. When we worship and then do, we orientate ourselves to God. I'm going to skip over the actions of the three angels in verses 6 to 13. Not because it's too difficult, because we don't have time. Um, but if you read the blog, you'll know that one of those angels, angel holding the gospel of truth, is angel between those two circular windows. If you look, you can see the book in his left hand. Again, the wings are pretty, but angels don't have wings. Rather, I want to jump to verse 14, where John starts to describe two harvests. In our popular culture, if you are to depict this week, as perhaps happened in your street, somebody with a sickle, then very often you think about death. But the image here of the one like the Son of Man with a sickle is not about death, but it's about harvest, which speaks of life and fruitfulness. John mixes his imagery up again. He's shifted from the lamb to the one like the Son of Man that we last saw way back in chapter one. The picture is of the ingathering of the kingdom of God. The harvest is right. The fields, the fields, Jesus said, are white unto harvest. Pray that the Lord would send the workers in to gather the harvest. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing the gathering of that harvest. And harvest time is a joyful time. And peculiarly, the image that John gives us here fits with this theme that the lamb does no violence because what's missing from here that we see elsewhere is there's no threshing, there's no that violent action to separate the wheat from the chaff. We, you and I, are both the harvested ones, but also the ones who participate in harvesting. 
Jesus sent us out with his eternal good news to tell people that they can find life. Well, you can only find life in him. And the good news within the good news is that we don't do this on our own, but that we're already participating with Christ's joyful ingathering into his kingdom. It's he who swings the sickle, not us. But we participate in what he is doing. Joy, what a privilege. It's mind-blowing. For me, the puzzle arrives with the second harvest. The trampling of grapes in the Old Testament speaks to us of, of God's final judgment. Now, we know that John creatively uses the Old Testament. So it's not a like for like, but it, it, through the event of the cross that what the Old Testament prophets saw dimly and darkly changes and is sometimes turned upside down. And the image here of the wine press includes this disturbing image of blood. I'm predicting some horse chat in the pod because it's bridal high, 200 miles. And, and that's really saying that it covers everybody. It's taller than me and 200, well, John actually wrote 1,600 stadia. And that's saying it covers the whole earth. But whose blood is this? Who are the grapes that are being trampled? I'm not convinced that it's God's enemies. The lamb does no violence. And I don't think we have a picture here of God enacting violence upon his enemies in this wine play, press. There's lots of blood in the book of Revelation. 17 times blood is mentioned. And I can see nowhere in those references that the blood refers to the blood of God's enemies. It's always the blood of the lamb or it's the blood of the saints. So this would be the exception that changes the rule. That's a possibility, but I doubt it. Back in chapter 6, you'll remember we had that image of the saints under the altar, under God's protection, under his covering, crying out, how long, how long, how long do we have to stay here? When are you going to avenge our blood? In 16, 6 and 17.6, there's also explicit reference to the blood of the saints. We don't know who is doing the trampling here. The text doesn't tell us that. Is it God? Is it his servant, the angel? Is it the dragon and those who've been co-opted into the service of the dragon? Is it all of the above? We don't know for sure. But I think... This is a picture of you and I in the wine press being trampled. But what does that say to us? I think the first thing to say is John is communicating theological truth rather than making predictions. He is not predicting the mass slaughter of Christians. 
Secondly, as we've said numerous times, this is a book of encouragement. He's not trying to make them anxious or fearful. He's consoling them. Verse 13 says, Blessed are the dead from now on who die in the Lord. And we know that the history of the church, there are many who have indeed died because they have been faithful to following the Lord. Tertullian, the early church father, famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that's true. Yet we know that more, if not most Christians, are not killed for their faith. So if we're in the wine press, what does this mean? Well, we are all called to die before we die. That is, after all, what we celebrate in baptism, isn't it? You have died to the old way of living. You are now raised to newness of life in Christ. The Apostle Paul speaks of this as well in terms of participating in Christ's suffering and his death. And I think that's what this image of the wine press is conveying. Just as Christ was crucified outside the city, so the wine press, which is being trampled, is outside the city, a link to both deaths. But what does it mean? Participate in Christ's death. I think perhaps the first thing we need to say is what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we save, because only Jesus saves. I can't even save me, never mind you. I can't fix me, never mind you. We need Jesus. But our trampling in the wine press, our participation in Christ's death, speaks of our renouncing, our putting off, our dying to the old sinful way of living. Again, we're, in some respects, back where Ian kind of like landed last week. What is it we need to die to? What are the untruths that we're believing about ourselves, the untruths that we're believing about God that need to be squeezed out of us? It means to put on Christ. It means that the world tramples us so we don't react in the ways of the world. We don't act like the dragon or the beasts, but we allow the Holy Spirit to use that moment to sanctify us. God works through me in this moment when I just want to dump this person. It's just me that feels that. Aggressive small man. It's an opportunity for the Spirit to grow his fruit in us to change our character so we are more like who? We are more like Jesus. Think of it. Think of the revolution that will take place when we walk out these doors more like Jesus. When we go into our workplaces, our families, more like Jesus. Oh, I need to be more like Jesus, full of his spirit, leaking it out. 
We need to be more like Jesus. Come and trample me. That I would be more like Jesus. But unlike the dragon and the beasts, the Holy Spirit is not coercive. He doesn't force us. We need to choose to participate in his work and what he is seeking to do in our lives. We had uh, David Wilkinson the other week there talking about science and things like that. I wanted to be a geologist once upon a time. I wasn't clever enough. But geological pressure produces diamonds. And so I think the pressure of the trampling and the wine press of God produces something in us. It releases the beauty of Christ to flow in our lives and from our lives. And so, with the saints and their harps, we end by beholding God in his majesty and his beauty, worshipping and praising him for who he is, for his great and marvellous deeds. Deeds he calls us to participate in and which flow from his loving, life-giving character and nature. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Calling a City to Life talk. We hope that you enjoyed it and that you'll join us again later in the week for the chat. Speak to you again soon. Goodbye.